Church, morning. Welcome to you. Welcome to our guests who are here today. We have some for the first time. We have some for the second, third time. Welcome to those who are joining us online, uh, live stream. You know, a few years ago, we had a dinner on the grounds, and it was a luau theme. Some of you may remember we were set up the tables outside, and they had the Polynesian food. So we were just walking by and filling our plates with food. On the other side of the table for me was Bob Madden. Now, Bob's not with us anymore, but Bob was big, about six foot three, 250 pounds of solid muscle. Motorcycle dude, a biker, and he looked like the stereotypical biker. A wicked Fu Manchu mustache. And his resting face was an angry face. I'll just say that. So we were going through the line. He was on the other side of the table for me. He's putting food on his plate. He looked over at me and said, Steve, I need to talk to you about something. I said, okay, Bob, that's fine. And uh, he went, sat down, and Tammy and I sat down. Tammy looked at me and said, what was that all about? I said, I have no idea. She said, what did you do? <laughs> like I'm always doing something to upset somebody. I said, I can't think of anything. So finally, I went over to Bob. and said, Bob, you want to talk to me? He said, yeah, uh, let's go around the side of the building there. I said, I said can Tammy come with us? Or... <laughs> No, well, you know what it wound up being? He wanted to develop a ministry to bikers. He wanted to know what I thought about it. I said, really? I mean, that's kind of anticlimactic, I know. And I said, Bob, you couldn't give me a heads up of what this was about? Well, let me give you a life hack or a tip. If you're going to talk to somebody, give them a heads up. Know what it's going to be if you text them or email them or leave a voicemail. Just let them know or otherwise they're going to worry about it. Well, that's kind of what I want to do in, our, in this message today. We're starting a new sermon series. WWJD, question mark, LGBTQ, what would Jesus do about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, Q stands for queer, everything that doesn't fit in that category. And there could be a whole alphabet of other letters you could put out there as well. Now, you may say, Steve, what in the world? Why are you going to have a series about this? Well, I did. Actually, I preached this, a series like this about seven years ago. Some of you were here for that. But it's time to update. A lot has changed in the last seven years. When I first preached on this, uh, for instance, the, the 2005 Supreme Court decision, Obergefell, legalizing gay marriage in all 50 states, that had not even happened yet. And that was a huge game changer for our country. But uh, so I, a lot of things need to be updated and addressed. And what I want to do in this message this morning is just kind of set the table. I want to give you a heads up. First of all, this is going to be the series for July we're going to take our time. It's a broad and complex issue. Can't do, you can't address this in one message. I went to a workshop on uh, these issues on the North American Christian Convention. There was two presenters. They had an hour-long time period. They spent the first 10 minutes talking about what they were not going to address in their presentation because they weren't going to have time. So we're going to do four approximately 25-minute messages. I may even extend it because I want to spend a little more time on the gender identity issues than I did a few years ago. That's gaining in prominence. But there's a number of reasons why I think we need to have this discussion. We need to address this as a church, and that's what I want to talk about simply this morning. Uh, let me talk about, there are more than one, three, but let me just talk about three. Number one, it's culturally relevant. It's because it is culturally relevant. In John 17, 11 through 16, Jesus has a prayer. Here's a portion of what he said. He's praying to God. He said, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, meaning the disciples, are still in the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
So here's the saying. We Christians, we're in the world but not of the world. Now what does that mean? It means the church exists, every church exists in some specific time, place, and culture. We're in that, we're in that. But we're, we do not allow the culture to dictate to us our values, our beliefs, our convictions, and our practices. So the church may find itself in a position of being countercultural at times. I think probably the church of every generation on some uh, issue or other will have found itself being countercultural. And that's certainly the situation where we find ourselves today, in a countercultural situation. So the Bible calls us not to be of the world, but to be salt and light. The light of the world, salt to the earth. So we're to we're to inf, we're still to influence our culture to preserve it, uh, to inf, not let them influence us, but we influence them. So we have that responsibility as we live in the world as well. If you talk about hot button issues in our society and in our culture, well, LGBTQ is going to be in that list, and it may be the number one hot button issue. And we as Christians are going to be engaging on those issues, have been in the past, are right now, and will be even more so in the future. Let me read you a, um, a quote here. This is from Rod Dreher of the American Conservative. He wrote this back in June of 2015, immediately following the Supreme Court Obergefell decision that legalized gay marriage. He writes, the Supreme Court is now, in constitutional doctrine, said that homosexuality is equivalent to race. The next goal of activists will be a long-term campaign to remove tax-exempt status from dissenting religious institutions. Well, that's been happening. In fact, there was a Supreme Court decision on that just recently. The more immediate goal will be the shunning and persecution of dissenters within civil society. After today, all religious conservatives are Brandon Ike, the former CEO of Mozilla, who was chased out of that company for supporting California's Proposition 8, which identified marriage as between a man and a woman. He continues, Orthodox Christians must understand that things are going to get more difficult for us. We're going to have to learn how to live as exiles in our own country. We're going to have to learn how to live with at least a mild form of persecution. And we're going to have to change the way we practice our faith and teach it to our children to build resilient communities. In their descent, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Samuel Alito. Now, here's what they said. Now, I quote them specifically here because they're not, you know, extremists, right-wing extremists out out there in left field spouting irresponsible statements. These are two Supreme Court justices. They warned explicitly that religious traditionalists, this decision leaves them vulnerable. Alito said, Obersfeld will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy and will be used to oppress the faithful by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent, end quote. Since that time, those predictions have been fulfilled in the lives of bakers and florists and actors and chaplains and teachers and athletes and restaurant chains. Oh, by the way, there's, I, I read in the Babylon Bee there's a competitor to Chick-fil-A now that sells chicken sandwiches only on Sundays. The, the restaurant's called Chick-fil-A Theists. Have you heard about that? <laughs> now, <clears throat> all I'm saying here is that this is a culturally relevant issue, and it's not, I believe, and my personal belief is not that we're that Christians are singling out this issue, but the church has been singled out by the activists on the other side, because this is the legal club that's being used to hammer the, the church, and so we have to address it. Now, I'm a little quote-heavy in this first point. Let me read you a recent Barna study conducted among 16 to 29-year-olds. 
It shows that a new generation is more skeptical of and resistant to Christianity than were people of the same age just a decade ago. The study discovered a new image of the church that has steadily grown in prominence over the last decade. Today, the most common perception is that present-day Christianity is quote-unquote anti-homosexual. Overall, 91% of young non-Christians and 80% of young churchgoers say this phrase, anti-homosexual, describes Christianity. What does that mean? As the research probed this perception, non-Christians and Christians explain that beyond their recognition that Christians oppose homosexuality, they believe that Christians show excessive contempt for and unloving attitudes towards gays and lesbians. Okay, contempt and unloving attitudes. One of the most frequent criticisms of young Christians was that they believe the church has made homosexuality a bigger sin than anything else. Moreover, they claim the church has not helped them apply the biblical teaching on homosexuality to their friendships with gays and lesbians. It's culturally relevant. And one thing I want to do, I don't like other people to position me as a hater, for instance, or as a bigot, or as a homophobe. I don't think ever, any of those things are descriptive of what I consider my position to be. I think we as individual Christians and as a congregation in the church, we ought to, we ought to define our own position. Uh, and that's what I, part of what I want to do in this sermon series. So for its cultural relevance... Secondly, we want to have this series or this discussion for its biblical relevance. Biblical relevance. Now, let me read a passage from Paul, 1 Corinthians 14, 7. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a flute or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's the distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Context here is in the first century in the Corinthian church, there were people who had the miraculous gift of speaking in other languages. And Paul is saying, if you get up and you got an audience full of Greek speakers and you're speaking Egyptian, they're not going to understand what you're saying if there's no interpreter present. So you're not doing anybody any good. And he used the comparison of a battle. It was an army and they're on the field in battle. Before they had walkie-talkies and other forms of communication, they used a trumpet to signal the army. There was one call for attack. There's another trumpet call for retreat. All kinds of different signals. And he said, if that trumpet is sending an uncertain signal, the army on the field will know what to do, whether they're supposed to attack or retreat. So he's simply saying the application is uh, communicate God's word clearly to your audience or to your congregation. Well, does, is the Bible silent on these issues, LGBT issues? Is the Bible uncertain? Is, is the Bible indistinct? Tammy and I like to watch on television, we watch television, the, the genre is called cerebral mysteries. And a lot of times those are coming out of England. So we're like watching masterpiece theater. Well, those people over there, they have an accent when they speak English. I know it's the King's English. It's all proper and everything, but I can hardly understand what they're saying. We have to have the subtitles on to watch our favorite mystery shows coming out of England. Well, does, does the Bible require subtitles on this? Because here's, here's a dilemma. Most Christians are at least vaguely aware that somewhere in the Bible, homosexuality is categorized as sin. Okay. At least a vague awareness of that. That's somewhere in there. Now, if that's the case, how is it then that you have practicing homosexuals or two same-sex partners who get married who claim to be Christians and followers of Christ? How is it that you have churches and more and this is happening more and more in denominational churches where they just make a pronouncement we've changed our position on this we no longer view this as a sin we welcome uh, same-sex couples and whatnot as active members and ordained into ministry 
How does that happen in light of these Bible passages? Do you know? Do you know how they approach the passages that address these issues? They, there is a hermeneutic of le legitimization. A hermeneutic is principles of interpreting the Bible. They have a certain approach, a reimagination, a reinterpretation of the passages that seem to condemn homosexuality and are reinterpreted to where they condone homosexuality. Now, do you know how they do that? And do you know what those passages are? That's something that we're going to talk about. We're going to look, not today, I'm talking about in this series, we're going to look at what the Bible actually says. We're going to look at how traditionally people have interpreted those passages and how others are interpreting them today. Now, we get, we're going to dust off our Bibles on this one. I was I read the, not long ago, Tanya Sutton was arrested in Fort Pierce for public drunkenness. And they went through her possessions, and in their purse, they found a Bible. They found a Bible, Tanya's purse. You know what was in that Bible? A crack pipe. She was carrying a crack pipe in her purse. Now, I've heard of people carrying different stuff in their purse, in their Bibles before. Some of you have 12 months worth of bulletins stuffed in your Bible. I read about one guy had a you know, cut out a, a space in there and carried his gun in his Bible. Never heard of a crack pipe in a Bible before. But whatever you carry in your Bibles, it's not enough anymore for us to have a vague awareness of what the Bible may teach in this area. I mean, it used to be the culture was going along and supportive of the church, the church supportive of the culture. Things have changed now. Church is countercultural. And we've got to get our Bibles off the shelf, dust them off, shake out the bulletins and the guns and the crack pipes, open them up, or get out the electronic version, if you have the U version on your phone, have whatever you have is your Bible, and we're going to take a look at what the Bible actually says, what it teaches, how to interpret it, how others interpret it, and then you can make your decision. Because the bottom line for us here in this church, what we believe about the Bible, it is the infallible, inerrant, Word of God. And the bottom line for us, what it comes down to us for us in this issue and in all issues, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is our only rule of faith, doctrine, and practice. What does the Bible say? We, we, we used to be known as the people of the book in the Restoration Movement churches. That means a people who know their Bibles. So we'll look at the specific passages that we need to look at and just see what God's Word actually says. There's a biblical relevance issue here. And then the third reason we're going to have this series is uh, personal relevance. Is personally relevant. 2 Samuel 19.4. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, what has happened here, this is King David. And his son, Absalom, had just been killed in battle. David's a warrior, a seasoned soldier. He's seen thousands of people killed in battle. He himself is responsible for probably hundreds of deaths in battle. None of them affected him like Absalom's death. Absalom's death broke his heart. Why? Obviously, Absalom was his son, and that made it personal different when it's your family. 
years ago, uh, we lived in Virginia for about seven years, and then we moved back here to Florida. But our kids were middle schoolers, and my son, Stephen, was a middle schooler. He wanted to go to church camp, a week of church camp, back in Virginia, where all his friends were. I said, okay. So I drove him back to Virginia, and we went to Camp Rudolph there for a week of camp. And I was on staff as a counselor and a teacher. And every morning, we, on, we faculty members, we'd get together early in the morning, have our breakfast before we had to engage with those kids and just talk about the agenda for the day. Second morning of camp, and the dean's going through his agenda. And then he gets to the point where he says, <clears throat> he said, uh, now, now he said, I've got an issue. He said, you know, we have this rule where the, the, male, the, the guys are not allowed in the women, in the girls' dorm. And we explained this on the first day of camp and orientation. Uh, if you break that rule, you're going to be sent home. We said yesterday afternoon, there was a group of guys who ran into the girls' dorm, and then they ran back out. They broke the rule. He said, we only caught one. And he said, uh, according to the rules, we should send him home. Now, he said, I don't, but it's only the second day of camp. He said, I hate to send him home. He said, I told this boy, if he would tell me who the other boys were, I would let him stay. But he, he wouldn't do that. He didn't want to rat out his friends. He said, so I'm asking you, what do you think we should do? And so I didn't really care. I just want to eat my cereal. And, but he went around, and he's asking every person. And he got around to me and said, Steve, what do you think we should do? And I looked up at him. I said, Dean, it's a no-brainer. He broke the rules. Send him home. Well, things got eerily quiet when I said that. <laughs> and I realized these guys, they know something that I don't know. And then uh, it dawned on me. I looked up at the dean. I said, Dean, it wasn't my kid, was it? He said, yeah, have a nice trip. Now, you can imagine my surprise <laughs> at that. We had to drive all the way home to Florida. Now, if I had known that it was my kid, I might have been a little less judgmental and not as quick to judge, or maybe not. Maybe we would have come to the same decision. But the point is, when it's your kid, it's different. It's personal. It was said about Jesus that a bruised reed he would not break. A bruised reed he would not break. I was thinking about the other day. I was out there at the beach walking along the boardwalk. You had the sea oats that grow there, and some of those stalks were bent over. And I thought, you know, that a bruised reed, Jesus wouldn't just break one off. He would have set it back up, maybe wrapped it around with some tape and tried to heal it. When Jesus dealt with broken people, he was gentle. He was patient. He was long-suffering. His goal was healing and restoration. A bruised reed he would not take. We can talk about what's happening in the culture. We can talk about Supreme Court decisions and laws. We can talk about studies and statistics. None of that really matters when this is happening in your family. I want you to know, as we progress, that I know that this is personal. We are talking about people. We're talking in some cases about our own sons and daughters or, or grandkids or brothers and sisters who struggle, who are struggling with same-sex attraction, who may be struggling with gender identity issues, that it's personal, it's gut-wrenching, it's heartbreaking. I know that. And one of my goals is to let you know I'm aware of this, sensitive to it, and to approach it the way Jesus would. 
it, the Bible says that Jesus came and he revealed to us the Father full of grace and truth. Now there's the balance that we must strive for really in, in everything that we're addressing biblically, but certainly in, in this issue, we've got to reach that beautiful middle ground of grace and truth. We know we have to be true to the Word of God. You've got His truth, His holiness over here, righteousness, what's right or wrong, and at the same time, hold that intention with the grace of God, just as much a part of His character, His mercy, His patience, His long-suffering, His forgiveness, His healing, grace and truth. Only Jesus did this perfectly every time. I certainly don't claim to, but we're going to try to get as close to that as possible. It's, we're not going to take an us versus them approach on that. We can't. We love, love our sons, our daughters, our family members, our friends, circle of influence who struggle in these ways and these areas. One more quote here from an anonymous Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. He wrote, What if the church were full of people who were loving and safe, willing to walk alongside people who struggle? What if there were people in the church who kept confidences, who took the time to be Jesus to those who struggle with homosexuality? What if the church were what God intended it to be? When I preached on this seven years ago, at the conclusion of the series, I had people come to me and say, this is my issue. And I didn't know that beforehand. But I said, this, this is my issue. I had people come to me, and they said, this is, this is what's happening in my family. I have, I've already had people come to me after the first two services. And said, this is what's going on in my family, and this is what I'm dealing with. Even though we may be talking about 1%, 2 or 3% of the population, I doubt there's a family in this congregation that has not been touched in some very personal way with, with these struggles and with this issue. The Lord holds out a path, a hopeful path of healing, forgiveness, restoration, and abundant life for those who are broken sexually. It's the same path he holds out to the rest of us. Who's not broken in this sinful world? We are all broken. Some of us are broken, many of us are broken sexually. Many of us are broken emotionally, relationally, physically, financially. We're all broken in some way. We're all traveling, looking for and traveling the same path. Healing, forgiveness, restoration, and abundant life. We're going to travel that road together. we got a lot of work to do. Let's get busy. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will help us to find that balance between grace and truth. We pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment for ourselves, for the people that we love so much who are struggling uh, sexually and struggling in other ways. Help us to be humble, loving, gracious, and true. In Jesus' name, amen.